Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Live to see it, friends, and welcome to the world transformed. This program is your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, one that will be here sooner than you think, and one that you have an important role to play in bringing about. At the world transformed, we want to introduce you to what may be the greatest transformation of them all, the one that begins with considering and acting on the almost limitless possibilities that lie before us and that ends somewhere beyond the reach of the human imagination. So, when does this amazing future begin? Well, today is the day. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-author, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. Happy Monday. How are you, my friend? Man, I am great. But, you know, it's going to be a great show. That's, uh, that's the big deal here tonight. We got, well, we're, we got we're super excited. We, yeah. We've been lining up some good guests all summer long, but... Uh, it's going to be hard to top this one because uh, we've got uh, one, of our, one of our co-authors of Visions for a World Transformed with us. Uh, Dr. Aubrey de Grey is a biomedical gerontologist who researched the idea for and founded the SENS Research Foundation. SENS, of course, stands for Strategies for Engineered Negligible Senescence and the idea he outlined in his 2007 book, Ending Aging. Aubrey has a BA in computer science and a PhD in biology from the University of Cambridge. He's editor-in-chief of Rejuvenation Research. He's a fellow of both the Gerontological Society of America and the American Aging Association. Plus, he sits on the editorial and scientific advisory boards of numerous journals and organizations. And in addition to which, as I mentioned, he was a contributor to our book, Visions for a World Transformed. Aubrey de Grey, welcome back to the World Transformed. Hello. Hello. It's great to be back on the show. Well, it's great, uh, great to have you with us. So I, I mentioned that you had contributed to our book. Why don't we kick it off with a question that you actually raised in, in your contribution to the book. I'm just going to read you your own question here, and you can, uh, you can answer it. The, the, the question is, what possesses people to defend the existence of the phenomenon that is far and away the most likely thing to kill them? And not only that, but to do so slowly and painfully. Yes, it's a fascinating question, isn't it? Because it, yes. seems, it, it seems to be just as prevalent now as it has been for the rest of civilization. There are still only a few of us out here who do not defend aging and who really recognize that it is the single most important problem in the um, experience of humanity. Uh, I, I believe that the fundamental reason why people are so keen to continue to make excuses for aging and to, you know, to pretend that it's some kind of blessing in disguise is that they don't want to get their hopes up. They just want to actually continue to put aging out of their minds and get on with their miserably short lives and make the best of it. Because the alternative is to be preoccupied by this terrible thing 
and to uh, perhaps convince oneself that it's going to be resolved in time so that one will not suffer from it. But then, of course, one knows that the rate of progress of any pioneering technology is highly unpredictable. So one's always scared of progress being too slow and of missing the cut, so to speak. Now, yeah. that kind of used to make sense until fairly recently, until maybe I, until sense came along, really. Because until that time, we didn't really have much of a clue how to go about using medical research to develop proper interventions that would genuinely keep people useful however long ago they were born. And without any real plan, uh, it was reasonable to take the view that, well, you know, we've been optimistic about bringing aging under control since Gilgamesh, um, but nobody's ever actually achieved it. So we shouldn't really be getting our hopes up now. And that's fine up until the point where we, have to, uh, where we get a plan. But now it's a huge part of the problem because, of course, this kind of um, you know, ostrich-like mentality of just putting the whole thing out of our minds is a huge uh, barrier to getting the uh, necessary research actually funded and thereby performed. And that means that we are delaying the development of the therapies that will eliminate the ill health of old age. And that means that an awful lot of people are going to die unnecessarily. Yeah. So we've got barriers to overcome, both in terms of um, what, what needs to be done on the research side. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But, but this idea of attitudes towards aging is really fascinating for, for me. One, one of the points you raise in your in your chapter in the book, is that the elderly themselves are guilty of a certain species of, of ageism, um, that, that, that the elderly often will make the case that medical research dollars shouldn't be spent on them. It, it should really be going more for helping out uh, younger folks, if, mm. if, I, if I read that correctly. Yes, um, why, do you think that's, why do you think that's the case? Well, I think it's really uh, an example of the same thing. You know, the elderly have, by definition, been around a long time and had to, you know, get used to the inevitability of their decline, their own decline. So they are the people who find it the most difficult to entertain the possibility that that decline could be averted. And therefore, their presumption is that however much is spent on them, in terms of medical care, the benefits will be very modest. Uh, they will only perhaps be uh, you know, maintained in any kind of acceptable level of health for a little bit longer than they otherwise would, whereas the same number of dollars spent on the medical care of younger people would have a substantially larger effect. And of course, this is self-fulfilling. It's certainly true right. at the moment that this doesn't actually work, but the whole point here is to change that. So yes, I think that a huge part of the problem here is that in contrast to every other problem that people have in life, um, for aging, the victims of the problem, uh, they just don't complain enough. Um, you know, if they did, then maybe things would happen more easily. There's a very interestingly on point piece by Glenn Reynolds in USA Today, today, actually. I don't know if you saw this, but the the story was who wants to live until they're 120 and uh, let me let me read just a little portion of this i think this is interesting uh, glenn writes do you want to live longer a surprisingly few americans do according to a survey by the pew research center and he has a link there and if you follow it 
it's uh, research into whether people want to live longer than previous generations, and it's kind of what you would expect. A lot of people say, no, no, I'm not interested in that. Don't want to don't live too long. And he says, and maybe that's true, although I noticed an endless array of articles advising people on how to live longer by going to church, by cutting back on booze, by having the right number of orgasms, and, of course, the usual diet and exercise routines. So somebody must want to live longer. Maybe people are just lying to the survey takers, afraid that they'll look selfish if they say they want to live longer while secretly feeling otherwise. Or maybe they're afraid that living longer just means an extended period of illness and decline. And he, he has this quote from Jay Leno. Jay Leno once said, if you eat right and exercise, you'll get more years. But there'll be years in your 80s when what most people want is more years in their 20s. So do you think that's, uh, that's part of it? We, we're conditioned to say that uh, we, don't, uh, we don't want to live any longer. But deep down, I mean, we're, we're all trying to anyway. I mean, it's kind of a natural survival instinct that we, that, that we do actually want to live longer. I think that's absolutely right, yes. I mean, the... Uh, the fact is, nobody wants to get sick. Nobody right. wants to get Alzheimer's. Nobody wants anybody else to get Alzheimer's. Um, so, you know, the issue is that we are somehow trying to square the circle to say that one thing, uh, a particular thing, getting sick is undesirable, but that the consequences of not getting sick is also undesirable. In other words, living longer, um, which is, of course, completely crazy. And that's why people have to just let the, um, the, the rebuttals to their um, logic just go in one ear and out the other. I mean, the idea that we would be extending the period of ill health at the end of life by treating aging with medicine is an idea that's as old as you know, the ancient Greeks, of course. It's the basis of the myth of Tiffany. Um, and it's so ubiquitous that sociologists actually use the term the Tithonus error to describe this mistake. And so, you know, people have been correcting this mistake since long, long before I came along. And yet people continue to persist in assuming this. I'm sorry, they, they use what term? I didn't catch that. The Tithonus error, T-I-T-H-O-N-U-S. He was oh, there. okay. Yeah. The, the idea that living longer means living just continuing to degenerate further and further when you know that you can't live long like that can you Aubrey you, you in order to live a long time you have to you have to live biologically younger I guess is what we're trying to say so Precisely. Ill, Ill health is inherently risky it will right. always be the thicker you yeah, are it'd be hard more. to make that go on too long anyway although we've, we've yeah. done a fantastic job of it uh, yeah, we sometimes uh, drag it on uh, a, a long time in ill health, uh, but uh, that we, I think we've, we've, we've maximized that as much as you can, uh, it seems like. Well, we haven't, actually made all that oh, much difference. we haven't actually made all that much difference to that. So some people uh, have, have studied how long people stay alive after they get into a state of permanent ill health. Um, and, uh, you know, how that has changed over the years. And really the change is very slight. It depends, of course, on exactly what, how you define ill health, how bad your health has to be before you, before you are counted as being unhealthy. Um, uh, but some people say that that period has on average got longer, and some people say it's got shorter. But everyone agrees that it hasn't changed all that much. So most of the increase in longevity that we have seen 
in the um, post-war years, since World War II, in fact, arguably all of the increase has been an increase in the healthy years of life, not in the sick years. See, that is very good information. You know, the, yeah. so, so the idea that we've been making actually. people live longer in a, a you know, a, a debilitated state, that, that we've been extending pain, is just kind of an urban legend, I guess, right? That's right. It's totally ridiculous. Yeah. Mm. Now, you've been quoted elsewhere as using a phrase uh, talking about the pro-aging trance. Are, are what the kinds of attitudes we're talking about here, are those examples of that? They certainly are, yes. I mean, um, you know, it, this kind of irrationality, the reason I came up with that um, phrase was actually because when I started to encounter this kind of attitude uh, way back nearly 20 years ago when I got into this field, it reminded me of a, hypnot a stage hypnotist show that I had seen when I was a student in which some poor guy was instructed that his left elbow was the one on his right arm and vice versa, and then he was asked to touch his left elbow with his right forefinger, and of course he couldn't do it. Um, and then, that was funny enough, but then the real coup de grace of the show was that the guy was asked to explain why he couldn't touch his left elbow with his right forefinger, and he would give a completely lucid, unhesitating explanation. And of course, the explanation would be completely hysterical, it would be ridiculously illogical, but the guy wouldn't know it. The guy wouldn't know it. He'd just be on stage with all the with, with this hundreds of people in front of him, laughing their side, you know, splitting their sides, and he would just not see the joke. Um, you know, so it's just like that. So, I, I love I love that analogy. I, and you can, if if you've never seen a show like that, uh, Google it. There's there's lots of examples of this kind of behavior on on YouTube of people doing absolutely absurd things. Uh, because they've been they, they've they've been put in a hypnotic trance, and the basically the the thought connections are just jumbled, right? They're they're temporarily messed up. So we've got kind of a a, a temporarily we hope let's make it temporary uh, uh, a temporarily jumbled set of priorities or understanding of what aging is and how we should be responding to it. Right. That's well, the trend. Uh, Aubrey, I, um, one of the ways that uh, you uh, have said in the past that uh, the world could be shaken out of this trance is to be shown uh, by way of uh, perhaps the Methuselah Mouse Project or things like that, that, uh, hey, we've got a proof of concept. We can, you know, we can, we can reverse aging in, in, uh, in, in, in animals. Uh, how is that coming? Uh, what, uh, what, what is, uh, what's happening with, with that project? Yeah, so... Um the, the problem with aging and, it, and the, the increase of longevity, even in the laboratory, in other words, in laboratory animals, is that aging is so complicated. So you have to repair a large number of different types of damage um, in order to keep an animal healthy and therefore keep the animal alive. Um, and, you know, if you don't fix them all, at least reasonably well, not necessarily perfectly, but reasonably well, then the animal's going to die on schedule. You've got to, you can't leave any one of them untouched. Um, so that means that even though there has been plenty of progress in the research in all of these areas towards the development of ways to eliminate these various types of damage, nevertheless, because some of those um, 
research programs are still at a relatively early stage and they aren't working yet, even in mine, um, that means that we don't have any appreciable progress in extending the longevity of mice. But when we do, when we get all of these therapies working reasonably well and we can put them all together in the same mice, then we would expect a dramatic result. And in particular, we would expect a dramatic result even if we apply these therapies to mice that are already in middle age when we start the therapies. That's the thing that I believe is going to be the real tipping point in public opinion. First of all, it's going to be a tipping point in expert opinion, in right. public stated expert opinion, not more to the point. The problem at the moment is that, you know, I can come on, um, on your show or on camera or on stage and I can say all these things about what's happening and what's likely to happen in the foreseeable future. But most of my colleagues are far too um, in the, you know, under the control of their professional situation. You know, they have um, their next grant application to worry about or they want to get tenure or they want to get promoted or whatever. So they have to be terribly responsible, as they would say and not make any predictions and be actually much more pessimistic in public than what the science actually indicates. When that changes, in other words, when the results in the laboratory are sufficiently impressive that it becomes more um, intellectually um, you know, unsafe and embarrassing to be pessimistic than to be optimistic, then we will see a very rapid change in the consensus, the public consensus of expert opinion. And I believe that that's all it's going to take because the expert opinion of, uh, 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 in the field is, what's going to, is what determines the public positions of opinion formers, you know, Oprah Winfrey, people like that. And when those opinion formers start to say, well, look, let's get on with it, then you can be damn sure that my job will be done. Yeah. Well, let's get you on Oprah as soon as we can. I think that's, uh, <laughs> you know, obviously she would benefit from... Uh, from getting to talk to you, um, but but let me let me push back on that idea just a little bit. Do we need a big sudden turning point, or is there something gradually happening here? Do, it, it seems to me that I, I'm seeing the idea of life extension becoming increasingly mainstream, kind of organically, or maybe it's because it's in in response to the fact that there are people like yourself out there talking about it, and it's it's kind of seeping in. Is it is it possible that just that understanding reaches a critical mass at some point, or do you think a, a big event needs to occur to actually drive that? It's a great question. I mean, I, I'm, I guess I, I like to be cautious about this, and I'm still kind of thinking that probably a big event is going to be needed, but you may be right. It may end up being that the incremental progress that we're seeing in you know, a few more people um, over and over um, joining into this field uh, to this crusade, including some people with money, um, you know that may be enough to, um, you know, to, to let the research go as fast as the science allows. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. Certainly, we are still struggling to bring enough money in the door to get everything done. Um, but you know, as we make more and more progress, one thing that's definitely changing is that more and more of our projects are getting to a point of sufficient proof of concept that we've been able to spin them out into startup companies. And that, that, that's huge because, of course, there's an awful lot of people out there who are quite visionary and who you know, are perfectly willing to invest in um, high-risk, high-reward activities. 
but who really, really don't like giving money away. So, you know, they have resisted our attempts to get them to support the Sense Research Foundation itself. Yeah, I wonder if there's just a, you know, a, a simple questioning of the objections that needs to take place and... and I, I think about it this way, okay? Because uh, I was just I was just thinking about your reiteration of the fact that that people they don't want to be disappointed. They're they're afraid that they're going to get their hopes up and then their hopes will be dashed. Well, I've kind of internalized that one, you know, because I'm living hopefully that this will work out and support the idea and and do what I can to 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 move it along. And and I think about that. Well, okay, so what happens if you know? be about 30 years from now, maybe 35 if I'm lucky, I'm on my deathbed and it didn't work out, you know, oh no, I'm horribly disappointed. I kind of feel like I will think, well, you know what, at least we tried. I'm no worse off than I was, right? I mean, isn't that, that, that that fear of disappointment is, well, this is exactly where I was going to be anyhow, you know, at least, at least I gave it a try and now maybe my kids will enjoy this. Um, it, 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 It feels like, you know that that kind of thinking needs to be I don't know uh, uh, disseminated a little bit. People people need we need to really start pushing back on those arguments. I guess. Well, sure, you're absolutely right. I mean, rationally, that is that goes without saying. It's absolutely obvious. But the problem, of course, is that fear of getting one's hopes up is a very ubiquitous and deep-seated psychological you know, emotion. Uh, yeah, it's it not a rational thing, right? People don't come to that position rationally. It's just sitting there, right? Kind of, it's kind of part of our makeup. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not sure we can change that. I think we just have to find some way to sidestep it. I suspect that, you know, once real progress is seen, people will jettison those, those old attitudes pretty quick. I'm sure there was a lot of people that you know uh, would say things like, "If man were meant to fly, uh, God would have given us wings." But you know, and, until you know, uh, until the, you know, an airport opened up next to them, right? I mean, uh, you know, and, and all of a sudden they had the opportunity or the or the need to get someplace fast, and they could take a plane. Uh, the world changed pretty quick once the uh, the opportunity was there, right? So exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's just yeah. a question of getting that, getting far enough along that you can actually um, put this out of your mind and and feel confident that your hopes will not be dashed if you get them up. Right. So whether it's whether it's gradually or in a sudden, quick turnaround, and I hope a sudden one soon. When do you think that this will become the dominant paradigm? If you were if you were to put a, you know, are we five years out? Do you think ten years out? What do you suppose? I think five years is about right, actually. I think that, you know, certainly between five and ten years from now, we are pretty sure to have made that kind of amount of progress in the laboratory, um, you know, so as to really demonstrate pretty unequivocally that the rejuvenation approach, the damage repair approach that we are pursuing actually is the way to go. It's already become, it's already, you know, gravitated within the expert community from a point of, you know, being really derided 10 years ago to being, at very least, one of the main ways of thinking, uh, if not the most mainstream paradigm. 
And, you know, that means we've probably done most of the work to get it to a point where it becomes the common sense paradigm with, in the view of the people who are actually in a, in a position of influence. One of the things I saw when I was uh, preparing some notes for this show was a quote from you, or anyway, it was, it was attributed to you, that you said that it's likely that the first human being who will live to the age of 1,000 is already among us, and that that person may actually be in their, in their 50s or 60s. Uh, is that, did that come from you, and do you stand by that idea? That did come from me, and I do still stand by that idea. Progress, of course, has not been as fast in the past decade since I said that as I was hoping it would be. And so we've definitely lost a few years, but only a few. Um, you know, I think that we've uh, still got a pretty good chance of that prediction being blown out. But, of course, it's kind of a distraction, that prediction, because, you know, we're not going to have any thousand-year-old people in real life for at least 900 years, whatever happens, right? Um, <laughs> True. So as far as I'm concerned, the focus needs to be on the, the perpetuation of youth and you know, good health. And, you know, all of this business about longevity, it's just a side effect, and people get distracted by it too easily. Yeah, except to the, maybe to the extent that people can look at that and say, hey, maybe, maybe I'm that person, right? Or maybe I'm one of those people. That, 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 could, actually, that, that, that could actually be me, right? Because I, I read that, and I'm going, huh, I wonder if he lives in Colorado. I wonder if he's kind of mid-50s. <laughs> you know. Well, that's going to do it for part one of our interview with Dr. Aubrey de Grey. Aubrey will be back with us on Wednesday. For the conclusion of this interview, we'll be talking about exciting breakthroughs in research related to ending aging. I know you'll all want to be with us then. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you all for being with us. We look forward to being with you again on Wednesday. And until next time, live to see it. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.